0: Let's pray as we stand. Loving Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray now that by your Spirit you will give us ears to hear and hearts to understand, minds to put into practice all that you have for us to learn today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Do you please sit? personal question. What kind of example are you setting in Christian living? And what kind of impact is our church making on the local community? Challenging questions. Perhaps most of us would be inclined to respond cautiously, perhaps in some cases over-modestly. These are questions which St. Paul addresses in his first letter to the Christians in Thessalonica. We'll be looking through that letter over the coming few weeks, and we begin today with chapter 1. It was around 50 AD that St. Paul visited Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, as recorded in Acts chapter 17. It was a large, prosperous trading centre the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia, so a very important town. It continues today as Thessaloniki, the second largest city in Greece. After being forced to leave Philippi, following his successful mission there, Paul, Silas and Timothy moved on to Thessalonica, which in accordance with the usual custom, had a synagogue where Paul was invited to preach. Some Jewish believers responded, but others stirred up trouble. And after only a few months, Paul is forced to escape again and to move on, leaving behind a very new, young community of Christian believers, already being persecuted for their faith by those around them. Naturally, Paul is very concerned for them. He feels like a father in faith to them. And so he writes this letter to encourage them. And so he begins by greeting the fledgling community of believers. The church, which has sprung to new life, rooted in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He salutes them with grace, God's free undeserved favor, and peace, God's gift to all who believe in Jesus. And then he goes on to thank God for them, assuring them of his continuing prayers on their behalf in verse 3 of chapter 1 he specifically mentions three things their newfound act of faith in Jesus as they turn aside from idol worship secondly their love for Jesus expressed in practical ways not just a sentiment or a feeling and thirdly the hope which Jesus sustains in them, in spite of the persecution which they're experiencing. Faith, hope, and love are key characteristics of Christians in all times and in all places. It's a trilogy which occurs quite frequently in St. Paul's letters. Faith, which began in the past, when the Thessalonians turned to trust Jesus, for forgiveness and new life. Love, expressed in the present, as their faith is daily put into action. And hope for the future, which keeps them going in spite of opposition, until Jesus returns, or calls them home to himself. The hope is not a sort of fingers crossed Kind of hope. It's an assurance that God will keep his promises to them, come what may. It's a hope based on what Jesus has already done on the cross and in his resurrection faith, hope, and love. Three words which sum up the whole of practical Christianity, centered on God the Father and the gospel the good news of Jesus, his Son. So Paul encourages the Thessalonians to look forward to their final salvation in Christ, coming into effect on his return to earth as our Savior and our Judge. In verse 4, Paul calls his readers brothers in love, and the love of God, which unites them. And he describes them as chosen or elected by God. Chosen for what? For salvation? Chosen in a way that others, the non-believers, were not chosen? That might suggest that God favors some and therefore by definition, he rejects others. That wouldn't seem consistent with our belief in a righteous, fair and loving God. God has called and chosen them for his service as part of his eternal purposes. The issue of the relationship between God's will and human free will is a complex one. But their election for God's service doesn't necessarily imply that everyone else... Those not chosen for God's service is therefore rejected by God for their salvation. Paul moves on from the church in verses 1 to 4 and goes on to talk about the gospel in verses 5 to 10. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not just a matter of words, it's dynamic. It comes with power to transform lives. Not the power of the preacher, but the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of the hearers. And the Holy Spirit also uses Christian people's lives as much as words to share the good news. We should be living out the good news of Jesus in a way that's attractive and can be used by the Holy Spirit to draw more people to Jesus. Hence our first question this morning. A question all Christians should ask themselves is this. Are we living out the gospel? Are our lives an effective advert for the faith that we have in Jesus? Are we worth imitating? In verse 6, Paul says that the Thessalonians welcomed the gospel message and they became imitators of him. In some senses, they copied him and his team. Just as he says, he and his team were imitators of Jesus, following Jesus as their example. Even though that resulted in suffering, they were still sustained by the joy of Given by the Holy Spirit in their faith. And so in verse 7, we hear that they, in their turn, as new Christians, became an example to others throughout Greece and beyond. They had turned from the worship of idols to the worship of the living God. And that made such an impact on their lives that it caused their faith to spread. To even more people. John Stott identifies the process of church growth like this The gospel brings the church into being. The church spreads the gospel, which then brings more churches into being and spreads the gospel. Even further, we can see it as a kind of cascading process. That's all a part of God's plan for his kingdom to grow around the world and here in this place. And we are all part of that plan. To turn to Jesus, the Thessalonians had to turn away from pagan idols. Literally, images of wood and stone prevalent throughout the pagan world, and associated with all kinds of immorality, as well as the literal fear affecting their whole lives. But an idol doesn't have to be an image of a false god. It can be anything that we put first in our lives in place of God himself. There are plenty of idols around us in the 21st century. Money, sex, power, ambition, popularity, appearances, or just more and more stuff to fill our lives with. Just like the Thessalonians, we are called to serve God with our lives. Any of those modern idols are just as likely to block our relationship with God as the false gods of the first century. When we turn away from anything which risks taking the place of God in our lives, and we make serving God our first priority, we discover a whole new freedom to live fulfilled lives with no need to be anxious about the future. Our ultimate hope is founded in knowing that one day, in our lifetime perhaps, or beyond it, Jesus will return to earth. And he will set up his eternal kingdom of love, joy, and peace. And so verse 10 encourages the Thessalonians and encourages us to wait expectantly for Jesus' return to earth as He has promised. But as He has also promised, it will be a time of judgment for all who have rejected God and rejected Jesus to go their own way. And Paul talks about the hope, the definite assurance for those who trust in Christ of being saved from the wrath to come. I think we sometimes get the wrong idea about God's wrath. It's not like human anger, some sort of emotional outburst, or a bad temper tantrum. It's the righteous anger of a creator whose world we corporately have spoiled. It's perhaps the kind of anger we might feel when we see someone cruelly mistreating a child or an animal, or ruining something beautiful in God's world. Jesus promises very clearly if we have faith in Him, when He returns, it will be a time when all wrongs will be put right. All pains will be healed and all tears wiped away. In the meantime, the whole question of suffering and how that relates to God's love remains something of a mystery. But for Christian people, his return is something that we can look forward to with anticipation. An eternity of everything, of all being well. And as Jesus himself said, no one will know when that time comes. And it seems to have been a long time waiting. But the best advice I ever had was to live each day As if that was the day when either Jesus would come back to earth or when we in our turn go to meet with Him at the end of our earthly life. Because one day, it will be that day. And so we're called to live each day trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's faith. Serving the living God through our fellow human beings often that's love and waiting for the return of Jesus in anticipation that's hope Paul has a lot more to say about Jesus' return in his letter to the Thessalonians but that's for another day today we are encouraged by St. Paul to live out the gospel in faith hope and love As we wait for Jesus to return and bring in his perfect kingdom of love, joy and peace.